0: If you were here last week, we talked about um, Moses the mediator, and how the context of the Ten Commandments we're looking at today uh, revolve around Moses being the mediator, and how the the Ten Commandments actually provoked God's people to realize they need someone to be that go-between. But today we want to talk specifically about those Ten Commandments, we want to get into what those are. So is everyone at Exodus chapter 20? It's on page 72 if you're using one of our Bibles. If you need a Bible, we will happy to bring one to you. It's really good to have one so you can see the words that God says. Those are more important than the words I say. Anybody need one? We can bring you a Bible? No? Yes? Over here we could use one. A usher. Is there an usher that can bring some Bibles? They're running. Well done, David. Look at that. Such a young man. Exodus chapter 20. Right up front. Great, thank you so much. Anybody else? Exodus 20? So we're going to be in Exodus 20, we're going to look at verses 1 to 17, but before we get into that, I want to start this morning by reading a section from the New Testament letter of James. And what James says to us as New Testament believers, as Jesus followers, what he says to us, our attitude ought to be towards God's law. Listen to this, and then I'll pray and we'll get into it. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And Father, we pray that you would indeed show us the acts that are meant to be in our lives when we read your words. Lord, how we are meant to see ourselves through your law, how we are meant to understand and walk in your law, but Lord, how your law is meant to cause us to put our faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray you would do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says? So today we look at the Ten Commandments. But more literally, these are called the Ten Words. And and traditionally, they're they're, they're talked about having two tables. You might have seen like a movie about the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston coming up, you know, with a big white beard, coming down the mountain with these two stone tablets, right? And the idea is that there's there's half of them on one side and half of them on the other. And we mentioned last week how, how... The Ten Commandments are divided into these two groups, the the idea being one of how we relate to God vertically, but then also how do we relate to each other horizontally. And so as we look at these Ten Commandments, these these ten words, we're, we're seeing that God is giving his people direction for living distinct lives. And through those distinct lives, they're going to know God and they're going to make God known to the surrounding nations. This is with the context, if you remember, when we saw last week that that there's a missional aspect of this. God has a mission. He wants the world to know who he is. And not not just in a sense as as we saw him making himself known to the Egyptians, where he's like wiping out their gods and saying, I'm bigger than those gods. More than that, he's wanting to know that there is no other god really but him. And and he wants his people to know that and to show that. And so these ten words, these ten commandments are about that. And it's important for us to recognize, not just in this Old Testament context of Exodus, but also in the New Testament context, that these commands are meant to be responded to. They are indeed not the Ten Suggestions, but the Ten Commandments. That God commands us to respond to what he says. Now, we could take each of these one at a time. Uh, because each of these has had a, a, a radical impact on the world, specifically on our Western culture. Uh, uh, when we talk about being under the rule of law, that, that idea was, was, that seed of that idea came here from God saying, here's the law that you're going to be under. But we, we could talk about each one of these things and the nuances and the wisdom of the, the laws that God gives, but that would be at least 10 weeks. And there's some other really great series that people have done about this, If you've ever heard of a, an Anglican guy named Jay John, he did a, a series called Ten that's actually pretty good. But, but what we're going to do today is what we really want to focus on is we want to focus on what these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words, how they're meant to impact us as Jesus followers. What, what's the impact that they're meant to have? How, how, do we, how do we, as following Jesus in the 21st century, how do we respond to these things? So we're going to look at three main truths from these 10 words about what our response should be. The first one is this, and you may know these from even last week. The first one is this. We are to love God supremely. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20 of Exodus. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you have our handout, you'll notice that the way I've kind of sort of lined out these Ten Commandments is lined them up. I've I've kind of expressed them in, in what our response ought to be. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, our response should be, we will only worship the God who saved us. Because that's how God's revealing himself even to Israel. Before he makes the command, he says, don't forget who I am. He's not just saying, be afraid of other gods or be afraid of getting me wrong. He's saying, listen, I want you to remember who I am. I'm the God who redeemed you. The God who speaks to us is first the God who liberates us. He sets us free from bondage. Now, God demonstrated his uniqueness by dominating the gods of Egypt, didn't he? We saw this in the Exodus, the whole Exodus series. And he's calling his people... To honor that uniqueness. They've seen firsthand there's no God like their God. And he's calling them to honor them as such. Remember, his purpose is not just that they would know him as such, but that they could show him as such. And this exclusiveness, this exclusiveness that God commands, you should only worship me, is meant for their protection. And we're going to circle back to that towards the end. So that's the first command. Second command, look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is on, the, that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Stop right there. So we have here God not saying, hey, I, I'm against art. I don't want you to make creative things. We're going to see as we move on in Exodus and God gives the commands for the, 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 the tabernacle to be built, the place where God will dwell. It's full of amazing spirit-directed artistry. So God's not against, he's not prohibiting art. What he is doing is protecting them against the wrong assumptions they might have. One of the things that we have to recognize is that all of us, every single one of us, are prone to assume wrong things about God. Some of those wrong things come from how we, we've grown up. Some of those wrong things come from how we, what we assume or what we've experienced. But we're all prone to, to assume the wrong things about God. So God, for our protection, says, no. I don't want you to kind of make me up in your own mind or with your own hands what you think I'm like. I want you to worship me as I've revealed yourself to you. So our response ought to be, we will only worship God as he's revealed himself. Now, in verse 5, continuing, he says, you should not bow down to him or serve them. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, I'd be willing to bet that you, you, there's not very many people that you'd meet on the street if you said to him, "Do you hate God?" They go, "No, I don't hate God. I don't think He's there, but I don't hate Him." Most people don't feel that way. But when the Scripture talks uses this kind of language, it's not the idea of of the angry atheist. It's like, "I hate God and I hate the idea of God." There are some people like that, but that's not the issue. It's talking about those who just refuse to believe in Him. They refuse to trust Him. They refuse to consider the evidence for him and what he's done, specifically in this context, what God has done for his people, the Israelites. But it's interesting, too, it's important we see that God's not here judging children for the failure of their parents. God says specifically he doesn't do that. God spoke through Ezekiel and says, I will not visit the sins of the fathers and the children or the sins of the children of the fathers. God says the soul that sins will be judged or die. So God doesn't do that. God... God deals with us as individuals. He judges as individuals. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here, he's warning, listen, when you go against this, when you, when you begin to form a wrong idea about God in your heart, in your mind, or with your hands, it has an impact on your household. In an Israeli household, in, these, in, these, uh, in ancient times, you would have had three or four generations in one household. This happens in a lot of places around the world still. You got the parents, you got the grandparents, you got the great grandparents, you got the kids. You got four generations in one household. And the point that God is making is He's he's kind of saying, I'm warning you, there's a really negative impact if you worship me the wrong way or you worship something as me that isn't me. It has a serious impact. But He also says this in verse 6 notice, but God is showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, God's not just saying this is a reward for your faithfulness to keep my commandments. God's saying, this is about my faithfulness to you. That if you're just willing to to take me as I am, to trust me as I am, I'm going to be faithful to you beyond what you can imagine. This is what God's commanding. Can you see why God would say, he wants us to be able to say, Lord, we're going to only worship you as you've revealed yourself. This is his good law. Verse 7. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord uh, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this isn't just about using God's name to express disgust, like a cuss word. You've all heard it, right? We've probably all done it. We, say, you know, we have people who say, you know, GD. You know exactly what I mean when I say that. Or use Jesus' name as if it's a, it's a cuss word. You slam your thumb with a hammer, and you use Jesus' name, and you're not asking for prayer. You're using his name in disgust. But this is not just that. This is much bigger than that. This third commandment is about God calling us to be those who say, God, we will only speak of you authentically and accurately. We won't be insincere. We we, we won't misrepresent your name, your character. When we speak of you, we want it to be accurate. Jesus kind of Hints at this command in Matthew chapter 5. Listen, he says, Again you have heard it said of those of old that you shall not swear falsely. That's implied in this third commandment. But you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. For I say, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of his great king. And do not take an oath on your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, or in my case, grow back. I've tried. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus is saying, listen, when you commit to God, just commit to God. There's no use. There's no benefit in us making a scene saying, I'm going to go for it with God. I'm all for it. I really want this to happen. And then actually never do anything with it. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Or what about when we say we believe in Jesus, but we act like we really believe in something else? That's taking the Lord's name in vain. So God causes people not to do that. Look at the fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall... Not do any work you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now one of the things that we jump to when we read this verse as New Testament believers, as Jesus followers, is go, okay, Sunday's the Sabbath day, but that's not what this is teaching He's not teaching that Sunday is a Sabbath day. Because the Sabbath for them would have been from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. This is why you even have some church groups who say you you should meet on Friday. Friday night or you should meet on Saturday morning. But that's not the point here. The point that he's making to his people is this. Listen, he's saying, he wants, he's looking for his people to respond to say back to him, God, we will only work and rest as you dictate. You control our work and rest. Now, I want that to sink in for a second. How many of you are going to start the work week off tomorrow going, Lord, what would you have me do with my time? This is what God calls us to. This is not God disapproving of work, but it's a God-given work-life balance. He's saying, look, look this is supposed to change. Now, you've got to understand, too, what he's doing here. What were, the, what were the Israelites before the Exodus? What were they? They were slaves. You think they got a day off? You think they had holidays? No, it was day in and day out. Work, work, work. And God said, I'm commanding there to be rest. But there's something else going on here, right? Listen, well, actually, let me read this first. This is how Jesus talks about the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But there's something else that he wants, that God wants his people to understand. Moses talks about this later on in Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 15. Listen, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Did you notice what we just read in Exodus? Remember the Sabbath? Because God creates in six days and rests on the seventh. And then you see in Deuteronomy, what's God say? Hey, remember the Sabbath? Because God rescued you from slavery. It's like what God's saying is, he's saying, listen, I want this time to be a memorial of the fact that I'm your creator and I'm your redeemer. That's where the overlap happens on Sundays. Because we gather together as those who acknowledge, God, you've made us, and God, you've redeemed us through Jesus. That's why we gather together. Now, the Scripture is really clear. In the New Testament, it talks about, I think it's in Romans chapter 14, it says, Some see one day uh, above others. Others see all days the same. Let each one be convinced in their own mind. There's a a freedom issue here about the day that we gather or the day's pearl that we gather. But there's no freedom issue in a work-life balance. I say this as someone prone to workaholism. I will often work uh, when I should stop. I often don't rest very well. That is not to my credit. And God says, no, there's something better. I have something better for my people that I want want to show that they are distinct from the rest of the world. So the world would say their God is different and I want their God. See, listen, it's really important we understand this, okay? In these first four commandments, we are seeing that God is commanding that we love him supremely. Listen, and this is for our benefit. It's for our benefit as God's people. It was for the benefit of the Israelites as God's people to be identified as those who worship the God who redeemed them exclusively. And that exclusivity is meant to protect them. Because as I said earlier, God knows how our hearts are always manufacturing new gods to worship. God gives us something good, but we worship it as if that good thing is God himself. This is what we do. So God says, no, 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 this isn't for you. See, God insists on the exclusive worship to free us from these false gods. And you know what's interesting? Jesus insisted on the same exclusivity. Listen to this in, in, in John's gospel, John chapter 14, verses six and seven. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying two incredibly important things. He's saying, one, that he is exclusively the way that we can know God. In fact, the reason I underscored the definite article, the word the there, is because it's only used in the Greek language when it's trying to make an emphasis. You don't need to use it. Sometimes you don't have the, the the there, it's just implied. But when it's there, it's 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 meaning, meaning to use an emphasis. And this is what he's doing. But also he's saying this, if you've seen me, you've seen your creator God. It's interesting to me, isn't it? Isn't it interesting to me that though have, we have people who put up pictures of Jesus in their houses, which is interesting that Jesus always looks like whatever culture they've come from. There's something good about that and something also not so good about that. Uh, Jesus wasn't blonde hair, blue eyed, just to be really clear. <laughs> he was not. But there's a reason the church never did images of Christ. You know why the early church never did that? Because they knew he was the image. He's the image of the invisible God. So they worshiped him and didn't make another graven image to worship. So so this is the first lot of commandments. And this is the first motivation that God has for his people. That we would learn to love him supremely. And it seems like, well duh, of course, but how hard is it for us to do this? Then we get to the second law of commandments, the second table, if you will. And these are meant to teach us to love one another willingly. Look at verse 12. I'm going to go through these a bit quicker. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that the days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. Again, if we talk, we coin this and what our response ought to be. We ought to say to God, God, we will, parents will always be honored now the promise here is that it has to do with God's long-term plan for Israel in the promised land. That, that he's, he's, he's wanting their families to be intact as a witness to the nation. Now as I say this, I want to be really sensitive because this is one of the issues I have to say gets me really good. Because even though I have a, a wonderful family, I really do, I have a great marriage, I have my kids are my five favorite people, and I'm really thankful that we are far from perfect We have our own dysfunctionality like every other family. And some of you might hear this and go, oh, family stuff, oh, I'm really, really broken. And so this is not about condemnation, but it is about what God wants to do, why family is important. Family is not meant to be what we worshiped. But God wants to be the center of our families so that as we worship him as families, people see how great our God is. This is what he wanted for Israel. He's also, listen, notice, he's restoring the lost family life that the Israels didn't have while they were in Egypt. You know how hard it would be to keep your family units together when you're slaves? How difficult would it be your family experience when, just when your daughter hits puberty, she's stuck and pulled into Pharaoh's court for some nefarious reasons? Or as soon as your son's strong enough to pick up a stone, he's put off into the labor camp. And God says, I want to restore that. I want to bring things back to where parents are are honored and children are loved and protected. Verse 13, you shall not murder. We hear this command and our, our response should be, Lord, life will always be valued. Life will always be valued. Now, this is not limiting God's right to take back life that he's given. There's no doubt, and we're going to deal with some of the stuff, and some of it's tricky ethic, uh, ethically. We'll, we'll wrestle with it as we come through it. But where God commands that people be executed. That's in the Scriptures. We're not going to try to bypass that. We're not going to sugarcoat that. We will address that. But the principle that his people need to know first and foremost is, listen, I'm not re- letting go of my rights to give and take life away, but I'm telling you, you don't have that right. You don't get to make that decision. You only do what I tell you on on these things. But again, here's a situation where Jesus takes this command and he goes farther. He goes deeper. Listen to this. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says, you know, I'm not just saying don't murder. I'm saying don't hate. Don't look at your brother or your sister and say, I wish they were gone. Don't do that. But this is what we often do. Verse 14, the next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The response that God's looking for in this is that we would say, God, sex will always have boundaries. You know what's interesting about this? Sex always does have boundaries. And every single culture, everywhere in the world. Now, some of you who didn't grow up in British culture are going, ah, you know, boundaries here, it doesn't seem. <laughs> no, there are. Consent is a boundary. That's still a boundary. And it's still a boundary that didn't exist before Christianity. I don't know if you realize that. Before Christianity, it wasn't about consent. It was about power. If you're a wealthy man, you could sleep with whoever you wanted. Boy, girl, man, woman, didn't matter. If you're wealthy, you could do it. If you're a wealthy woman... You could pretty much sleep with whoever you wanted, as long as your husband was okay with it. You didn't need anybody's consent but the powerful man husband. you could do what you wanted. The people that were being, having, being raped basically, they had no, con, no consent given, it didn't matter. That didn't exist until the gospel started taking hold in people's lives, and they realized we need a better we need better boundaries. Now, long before that, God says, "Listen. Should not commit adultery, and this isn't just about being faithful once you're married. It's about saying there's going to be these boundaries. Now, here's the truth: the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, New Testament affirms the sexual boundaries of one man and one woman in marriage for life. That's where sex remains. This is the boundaries that the New Testament has, and this is the thing that we have to recognize. This okay? There are there is no one who believes there shouldn't be any boundaries. And there's no one who has not tried to break the boundaries of God. No one. Including all of you sitting here right now. So if you're trying to think, okay, John should actually specifically talk about these kind of people and the way these boundaries are broken, you need to stop because this is about all of us. All of us would struggle to say, God, I promise I will always keep your boundaries about sexuality. In fact, Jesus goes even to the matter of the heart in this again, In Matthew chapter 5, listen, Jesus says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ouch. And yet God says, I want my people to be distinct. You know what's really interesting? When the New Testament believers, when they were wrestling with, what part of the law should we keep, you know? They had, you, know, you probably know that, that most of the New Testament believers in Jesus were Jewish initially. They were all Jewish people who thought, yes, Jesus is God's Messiah, God's Christ. That's what Christ means, his chosen king, right? But then there was all these non-Jewish people who, who began to become Christians, right? And, and, and some of them had been kind of Jewish converts first, then become Christians. But many of them never were Jewish believers, but then they heard of Christ and they began to believe that Christ was who he said he was. He was the son of God, that he had died for their sins too and that he had risen from the dead and he wasn't going to come back. They began to believe that and there began to be the struggle in the early church with, first, with the first Jesus followers because the Jewish ones were like, whoa, 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 how come they don't have to keep the laws? But we got to keep the laws. And so there was this big debate. Why, why did God save them and they never even became Jews? How did they get chosen without becoming God's chosen people via Israel? And there's this huge debate. And they got to a point where they said, okay, we realize that we don't keep God's law well enough. And so why would we put that burden on Gentiles? They're going to be saved the same way we're saved. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. But they're going to be saved through faith in Jesus. But they said, here's the thing that we say that all believers, Jew and Gentile, should hold on to from the Old Testament. Listen to me. Don't eat things strangled. That is, Jews had very strict laws about how you... uh, you slaughtered the animals you're going to eat so that you weren't drinking the blood. Don't give, eat things that were, had blood in them. And also, listen, don't eat things sacrificed to idols because the Greeks, of course, would sacrifice to their Greek idols or their Roman idols and they would take that meat in the marketplace and that, market, that meat was sold and that could be a stumbling block. The idea is don't do things that are going to stumble Jews. Don't do things that are going to stumble Greeks. And can you guess the only other part of the law that they said you should keep? The law is about sexual boundaries. This is so important for us because here's the deal. We should not be focusing on culture wars. We should be focusing on heart change. God, we want to be your distinct people. We want to be your distinct people. Next commandment, verse 15. You shall not steal. Well, that seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? Does it? It didn't say you should not steal and get caught. It said you should just flat out not steal. <laughs> In a sense, the, the, the response that God's looking for is private property will always be respected. Now you're going, dang it, I knew that American dude would be a capitalist. I knew it. This is not capitalism. Listen, listen. This is a recognition of God's means of stewardship. When God gives you something, it's not mine, it's yours. We are so blessed, Sarah and I, right now to be able to stay with the Mussons. They're a lovely family to live with. They're so chilled out. Their kids are wild, we love it. It's it's great staying with them, okay? It's their house. And Josh says to me a couple weeks ago, Ah, it's not, you have as much right to be here as I do. And I said, No, Josh, I don't. I'm so thankful that you've been gracious to invite us to stay with you, but I don't have a right to be here. This is your house. It's your stewardship. I'm blessed that you want to steward it in a way that's generous, but it's yours. We need to recognize this. This is a biblical principle. You know, you see, you see in the book of Acts where they had all things in common. They were so sure Jesus was going to come back any day that they took all that they had, they sold it, they stuck it in one pot and distributed as everybody had need. And you know what happened? They ran out of money. But the thing was, the heart was the right heart. Lord, it's, it's, it's ours, but we want to use it for you. And there came a point where there was this couple, Adonis and Sapphira. You guys remember this story in the book of Acts? And everybody had been giving their money to the church. And they would have been selling everything. And again, it's going to the poor. It's, it's taking care of the, 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 the whole sum of Christians there in Jerusalem. And what happens? Then as and Sapphira, they come and they, they, they walk up there. And they're like, hey, we sold their property. Here it is. Praise God. But actually, they sold their property and said, here it is. Put a little bit in the pocket. And Peter doesn't say, hey, everything belongs to God. You should give it to him. He didn't say that. Peter just says, it was all yours to begin with. So why did you act like you were giving it all away when you didn't even have to do that? You're not lying to man, you're lying to God. The point here, listen, is not about you guys giving more or I'm not going to talk about you're stealing tithes from God if you're not giving. That's not where I'm going with this. The point is this, God has given you a stewardship. Everything you own comes from God and it is yours to steward and you can't blame the government or the church or anybody else for how you use that money. You're going to stand before God with that. And God wants us to honor each other's property and steward our property well. That's the point of this. We're not going to steal. The next one, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What's the response we should have? All right, God, people will always be accurately represented. That seems a pretty simple one as well, doesn't it? But how often do we misrepresent people? When I confess my sins i done against people, I still misrepresent people. Oh, I was so bad I did this thing or that, that thing. But really, they kind of... Have you ever done that? How often have we been guilty of gossip? See, here's what God's getting at with this. He wants his people to see. He wants them to remember, listen, you were misrepresented in Egypt. You were treated badly you were treated radically unjustly. And that, the, the reason you were made slaves was there was enough propaganda going around that say you should be enslaved. Is that the only time in history that's happened? No. It continues to happen now. So God says, listen, he wants us to be the kind of people that say people will always be accurately represented. I think about what we have going on right now, the immigration crisis. Th- this is not a political statement whatsoever. I don't care if you like the laws or hate the laws or think the laws should be better enforced. That, that's 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 totally fine. i got no problem with any of that kind of stuff. But what do you see when you see an, a, a migrant? Is your first thought potential terrorist? A drain on the economy? Or a person made in the image of God? Because that's how they should be represented. Even if you think they don't have a right actually to be here. That's how they should be represented. Are you following me? God calls us to have a distinct view and a distinct way of the way we treat one another. The last one, and this is where it gets, like where God's making it really clear that this is not just about behavior. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, covet is a morally neutral word. It just simply means that you strongly desire something, and it it's even can be really positive. You can covet after God. God, I really long for you. But in this context, it's used in a real morally negative way. God is looking for us as his people. He's looking for Israel as his people to respond. God, our hearts will always be content with what they have. See, the law goes beneath the surface of human behavior. God's law goes right to our hearts to say, where are you at with this? Because God's law is meant to, to remind his people of the kind of God he is. That he's a God, as we just read earlier, in, in, um, or oh, we'll read later on, when God will describe himself as a God who's slow to anger, and quick the slow show mercy. He's a God of grace. And, this, and these laws, these commands are meant to, to go right to our hearts. To go, do we believe that the God who redeemed us is this kind of God? This is what he's calling his people to remember and to represent to the world. Listen to this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul looks at God's law and here's what he says. Listen. Romans chapter 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he closes off the section by saying, Oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen, Christian Jesus follower, if you don't read the law and go, man, I do fall short, you are hardening your heart. If you're not yet a Christian, I want you to understand something. This law is to make you see something that we're going to talk about in just a second. This law is not just, here's a bunch of rules for your life to be. It's to show you something about the God who redeems and about how desperate we are for him. Because this is the last and most important thing that we need to learn From the law of liberty. We need to learn to trust Christ exclusively. Exclusively. Listen. We trust him because Jesus does what the law cannot do. Here's the truth. The law, as we just read, like like Paul just said it in Romans 7, as we just read this. If you notice the law, it, it can expose our sin. It can expose our sinfulness. But it can't save us from it. There's all these commands, but no kind of power to keep them, necessarily. You might say, oh, but I have free will. I can just choose to keep them. Well, how's that going? We need something more than just our will to keep these commands. Listen again, Romans chapter 7. I'll read it again. Listen. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. This is what Paul says. Paul, who was way better at keeping the law than any of us have ever been, Paul says, but you know what the law does? It exposes me that I'm actually still a sinner. I think it's interesting that Paul used covetousness as the one. I wonder if Paul was coveting a higher position than he had religiously or coveting a different wife because we know Paul lived single in his ministry, but we know because he was, in his previous life, he was probably married, so his wife might have bailed on him, so maybe he was coveting that. So Paul, who could from the outside say, look at me, I've kept all the law, knew on the inside he had not kept God's law, even though that law is good. Jesus says this to religious Jews, he says this, to men who thought they were keeping the law, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I wonder if any of you can identify a sin that you've been guilty of today. Something bad that you know you shouldn't have done, something good that you've neglected to do. But Jesus says you're a slave to sin if you've practiced sin, but the slave and the slave does not remain in the house forever. But notice the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free and See, here's the thing. The law can expose where you're enslaved, where your heart's still enslaved, but the law can't free you. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. Because this is the point Jesus does what the law cannot do, but also because Jesus does what we cannot do. See, Jesus calls us as his people to a righteousness, a right walk with God and with people. It's not less than obeying the Ten Commandments. It's not less of a standard. It's more than obeying the Ten Commandments. It's more of a standard. He calls us to love God supremely, yes, and to love others willingly, but he calls us to do this from the heart. In fact, here's how he brings this up in Matthew chapter 5 once more. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus isn't going with the Ten Commandments. They're a bit outdated or heavy-handed. We don't need those. He says, no, no, I'm going to do every one of these perfectly. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Side note, tangent, this is how, how authoritative Jesus sees God's word, which is why we see it so authoritative. But also what he's saying is there's not even a comma or an apostrophe, so to speak, It's not going to be fulfilled by him. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, notice what he says, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees had a reputation of always doing everything God's law says. So how can you have a righteousness that's greater than that? How? You get it because Jesus fulfills the law for us. Listen, Jesus fulfills the law so that God can call us righteous right now, even as sinners who fall short, and God can make us righteous. When you see these 10 commandments, do you see these things and think, you know, those make sense. Those are good. We should do that. Do you agree with the scriptures that the law is good? So if the commandments are there, according to Jesus, so you can see how much you need him, do you see how much you need him? Listen, we don't want to make the same mistake that Israel as a nation made because eventually when Christ came on the scene, they were so sure of their ability to keep the law, though they weren't keeping the law, they were so sure of it, they missed who Jesus was. Listen, this is the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 10. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, is, their own righteousness, Israel did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Are you guys listening? This is so important. uh, And I'm talking to you, not just you guys who are still invested in Christianity, I am talking to you guys who claim to be Christians. You're serving in ministry here, man. Do you get this? This is what separates us from every other religion. We're not better. We're not better. We have a better Savior than ourselves. We have a Jesus who fulfills the righteous requirements that we just cannot do. And not just fulfills them for us. God, listen, God gives us. He gifts us with Christ's righteousness. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what he becomes on the cross. So that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Man, this is the good news. The good news isn't God hates your sexual sin. The good news isn't God hates the fact that you worship a false god. The good news isn't God God hates the fact that you steal in your corporate job or that you're constantly coveting in your secret heart. None of that is good news. That's all news you need to know so you can begin to appreciate how good the good news is why God gives us the law. Does this mean that we just ignore it? Okay, I get it. I believe in Jesus now. I'm cool. No. Because we're still called to love God supremely. And we're still called to love others willingly. But here's the thing. You're only going to be able to do that as you recognize what God has given you in Christ. When you recognize what God's given you in Christ, that he's already said to you and to me, because you believe in me, you are Righteous, as righteous as my dearly beloved son, Jesus. Do you believe that? Didn't seem like it. Do you believe that? Is your peace from that? I'm serious. I'm so serious. Some of you say, I know all this stuff. I didn't ask you if you know it. Do you believe it? Do you believe That Because of what Christ has done, God looks at you as completely righteous, as if you filled the law perfectly. Do you believe? Because once you believe this, then you'll be able to, by the Spirit, that that the work of Christ qualifies you to receive, by His Holy Spirit, He, the Holy Spirit, will help you begin to love God supremely and love others but it starts with you trusting Christ exclusively. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I wonder how many of you here this morning and being convicted that you don't trust Christ exclusively that you've tried to trust Jesus plus your good works or maybe you've just trusted your good works you thought "I, I think I pretty much keep the Ten Commandments I don't think I need Jesus I wonder if you're in that place If you're in that place, you know what you're like? You're like that person we read about in James. You see yourself in the perfect law of liberty and you forget who you are. You know what that means? You're not not freed by it. Because what God wants to do is free you from your self-righteousness. He wants you to be just sure of his righteousness so you can begin to grow in righteousness. That's what he wants to free you from. So first, I want to speak to you guys who are already professing to be Jesus followers. When you read the law, do you go, Ugh, I don't want that. That's I see law, I think legalism. It could be because you're actually not trusting in Christ's righteousness. And maybe what God's saying to you is, stop trying to trust in the law. That's what legalism is. Stop trying to destroy the law and replace it with your own rules. That's also legalism. Instead, trust Christ. Believe that what Jesus did was enough. And rejoice in the goodness of God's law. And for you who are maybe new to Christianity, you're still investigating, we want to give you an opportunity right now to respond to what God might be doing in your hearts. Do not claim to know what that is. God knows, though. So if it's clicking with you that, man, I can't be good enough, but Christ makes me good enough, and that's what Christianity is, that's why I'm supposed to trust Jesus. If that's clicking with you right now, and you're going, I want that, I want to trust Jesus, here's how it starts. You pray, and you say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you are alive like the Bible says you're alive. I trust that you did die on the cross for my sins, for where I fell short of keeping your commands, and I believe that it's you and you alone that can make me right with God. Let that be your prayer right now. And if that was your prayer, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to encourage you, because the Bible says that if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths, the Lord Jesus, we shall be saved. So if you've believed with your heart today, I want to give you a chance to confess with your mouth or at least confess with your legs. <laughs> I want to give you a chance to stand up and at least confess before me that, yep, I've I've believed in Jesus. Maybe you're not there yet. That's okay. But that's where you are right now where you said, I, yes, I need Jesus. I want you to encourage you to stand up And look at me and say, this I do, I believe, I believe in this Jesus. Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to grow in this, especially, Lord, as we go through Exodus. Would you help us to as we see the goodness of your laws, as we see them in their historical context and see why you commanded your people to do these things and we see how that applies to us in the 21st century, I pray you'd still protect us from legalism. That we'd want to obey you not because we need to earn our righteousness but because we've been given a righteousness. And we want to obey you not because we think that you won't love us if, you, if we don't but because you already love us and because we want to love you back, we want to do what you say. Lord, would you keep us in that right place? so that we're not trying to build our own righteousness, but we're simply trusting in yours, Lord Jesus. Please, Lord. And I pray you bless the rest of our fellowship time now. In Jesus' name, amen.